Having a job is important for any society. In fact, the whole purpose of the economy is to create a viable livelihood for everybody. The economy doesn't exist for the economy's sake. And for India, you know, a poor country, meaning that lots of people don't have jobs, secure jobs, for them, jobs become the most important thing. Hi, I'm Emil Jayaratnam, and you're listening to the Conversation Speaking With podcast. The huge margin of Narendra Modi's win in the 2014 Indian elections stunned many observers. If India was looking for change, it certainly got it. The man set to become the new Prime Minister of the world's largest democracy, Narendra Modi, has described the election results as no ordinary victory. The BJP on track to win by a landslide in the country's elections. The former chief minister of the state of Gujarat led his BJP party to a landslide victory, winning an incredible 282 seats and securing majority control in the lower house, something that no other single party has done for 30 years. The outgoing Congress party only won 44 seats. This was unthinkable only a few years ago, during its term in office, the party oversaw seven years of GDP growth of around 8%, and India was seen as the next emerging economic power after China. But the government and the economy lost its way. Growth faltered, and a series of major corruption scandals destroyed the credibility of the party. Can India beat corruption? This country's new economic growth is being driven not just by great innovation and enterprise, but by extreme levels of corruption. India's billion-strong population, corruption is a part of daily life. Paying bribes a matter of course. And so, Modi's entry onto the national political stage was perfectly timed. His US presidential-style campaign focused on the economy and promises of good times ahead for India. This clearly struck a chord with the public, who were crying out for change and to finally see the years of past economic growth translate into tangible improvements to their lives. Mr Modi is taking charge of the world's largest democracy on a promise to speed India's growth and turn it into a superpower. But Modi and India face many challenges. It is estimated that 20 to 30% of its population live below the poverty line, and the majority of its 1.2 billion people are young. About 65% are below the age of 35. The weight of expectations on Modi is enormous. The country wants, and desperately needs, economic growth and jobs. Millions and millions of secure, better-paying jobs. I spoke with Anthony da Costa, the Chair and Professor of Contemporary Indian Studies at the Australia India Institute, about the economic challenges ahead for India and the Modi government. It's quite clear that the level of confidence in India is not what I was used to. Today, Indians are very, very confident about themselves. Absolutely magnificent. Dalvey finishes off in style. India left the World Cup. After 28 years, the party started in the dressing room. Because India was seen as a poor country, and although it is still a poor country, it has changed its image. And it has changed its image not because of Modi, but because real things were happening within India itself. You know, the economy has expanded, people have become more educated. 
all of those things have changed India. So India is no longer the India that, let's say, I was growing up in. It is also very a confident India. And so that makes, I think, the Indians, particularly young Indians, want more. Uh, more because they, they know that the possibilities are almost limitless. And yet the economic system is perhaps not meeting that need in terms of opportunities and jobs. The rupee's sharp fall in the last two weeks has grabbed all the attention. The slide threatens to wash away the optimism about turning the corner on the current account that had built up over the past few months. Uh, people aren't getting jobs at all. So there is, uh, you know, growth happening without jobs. There are huge levels of corruption. In the last few years of the Congress party government, nobody seemed to be in charge. And it just things were just getting out of hand. Growth rates had slowed down, corruption scandals were erupting every day, and these were big sort of corruption scandals, and somehow nobody seemed to be in charge, the country was you know, going nowhere, and especially, I think, because there was a lot of growth before then. Those earlier growth rates and the sort of you know, rising incomes also created its own set of expectations that the future looks good. And because the growth rates had also slowed down, and then you have all this corruption going on, not enough jobs, and so this created the perfect mix for Modi to kind of step in and put his bold, very pragmatic kinds of statements. Basically saying you have to create employment for the young, have to open up and get investments in, we'll make in India, we'll, we'll, we'll clean up India. And basically he, that's the platform he started using. And that sort of captured the imagination of the public for the simple reason that Congress failed to deliver in those last few years. But now the onus is on Modi to deliver. With majority control of the House, he has been given a huge mandate and the expectations are high. One of Modi's major selling points during the election campaign was his record as Chief Minister of Gujarat. In that time, the state had higher GDP growth than the national average for 10 years and its per capita income tripled. Modi has promised to implement the Gujarat model nationally, but he faces a number of hurdles. One year later, investors are growing impatient with Prime Minister Modi, the many who hoped he would be the Ronald Reagan of India. Political headwinds also at play here, with the upper house of parliament slowing down Modi's ability to reform and pass bills. First of all, running a state is very different from running a country. The second thing is that Modi is an autocrat, all said and done. So in Gujarat, he basically had all the power he needed. There was no oppositional voices. Third thing is that Gujarat was already economically quite ahead of everybody else. It has a very mercantile business groups to begin with. It has a long history of entrepreneurs you know, going abroad. So they have all these international connections. So in many ways, it's the perfect sort of place to generally do business. In fact, Gujarat and Maharashtra are the two states where they're considered to be, you know, kind of business-oriented types of places. So I think all of those factors then play a role in Modi being very successful. On top of that, of course, he also cultivated certain types of businesses, including the Adanis, for example.
Some people would go as far as to say it was a kind of crony capitalism at work in Gujarat, particularly in these kind of modern sectors and especially with Adani. In fact, Adani still accompanies any Indian delegation anywhere uh, along with uh, Modi. The Adani Group is an Indian multinational company headed by Gautam Adani and headquartered in Gujarat. Its diversified businesses include mining, logistics and energy. In Australia, Adani owns a Carmichael coal mine in the Galilee Basin in central Queensland. So translating that into India would be problematic because then you are dealing with, number one, an opposition. There is a real opposition. You're dealing with at the national level where there's lots of differences. India is, is this very heterogeneous place. Bihar would be very different. Orissa would be very different. India is not a place where a single party can command all of this. At one time you could because politically perhaps, you know, Congress party was the party and therefore everybody could identify and there were, and there were true leaders. Gandhi, Nehru, all of these people were true leaders. They had visions. We don't have any visions really. I mean, Modi's vision is simply essential to modernize India. In his quest to modernise India, Modi has surprised many by turning to both socialist and free market policies. On the one hand, Modi is trying to change land acquisition laws so that the government can purchase land more easily, mainly from farmers, for businesses and infrastructure projects. The fight for land in India is turning into a burning issue. Tens of thousands of farmers from across the country have rallied in the Indian capital, New Delhi, to protest against the government plan to ease rule for acquiring land. At the same time, he has introduced a number of pragmatic and populist measures, such as the National Clean India campaign to clean up the country. And he has also introduced a scheme in which every family in India will have a bank account. He is basically a person who sometimes reminds me of George Bush Jr., that you can do it kind of approach. He doesn't have a vision as such, or really an economic philosophy, but basically to fix the problems as he sees them. So, okay, land is not easily available, let's try to fix this. He wants to modify the Land Act, which was passed by the previous government, but that's problematic because he doesn't control the upper house, and of course the farmers are not necessarily very happy about the whole thing. They obviously want to see that protections remain. He sees a very sort of filthy India, unhygienic India. He wants to introduce toilets. Swachh Bharat is, is his slogan. He's done a few other popular populist things like introducing bank accounts for a lot of poor people who have no bank accounts. Basically, I think in the end, what Modi is doing, he just makes you know, those little things a big item and he sells that. And people see yeah, the merits of it clearly and therefore he gets the support. But now the question of course would be you know, to continue to maintain all of this. Modi will need all the support and political capital he can accumulate to implement his pro-business agenda. Along with his plan to change land acquisition laws, Modi is trying to change labour laws so that businesses can hire and fire workers more easily. Anthony de Costa says such policies will create insecurities for many workers. 
in a society where jobs are so scarce, you can't create more insecurity. Uh, the way I look at it, if somebody has a good job, let's say, in the corporate sector, that person is supporting four or five other members of the family. But there are not that many jobs like that to begin with. So if that person's job becomes redundant because of the changes in labor law where now the companies can hire and fire easily, then it creates other kinds of problems behind. Having a job is important for any society. In fact, the whole purpose of the economy is to create a viable livelihood for everybody. The economy doesn't exist for the economy's sake. The economy is for the society. So jobs become the crucial thing because 99.9% people do not inherit wealth. They have to work for somebody in order to make their livelihood. And for India, you know, a poor country, meaning that lots of people don't have jobs, secure jobs, for them, jobs become the most important thing. And that's the one way by which you can address a whole lot of social problems, economic and social problems. Since independence, successive Indian governments have used social welfare policies as a safety net to mitigate the lack of jobs and the impacts of poverty. But the pro-business Modi government, concerned about India's budget deficit, is trying to move the country away from such socialist policies. In the last budget, the government took a neoliberal approach, cutting welfare spending and diverting the savings into infrastructure projects, hoping to lift business confidence and stimulate growth. For the government to be successful, the benefits of economic growth will need to flow to all Indians, says Anthony de Costa, not just to the middle and upper classes as it has done in the past. This government is responding to the whole budget deficit issue, which is very much a neoliberal approach. That somehow you've got to balance your budgets as closely as possible and thereby give the businesses the confidence to invest and so on. So in, in some ways it's playing the same routine as it plays everywhere else. So it's quite clear that the growth focus is there. In fact, that is its primary goal at the moment. And the expectation, of course, is that this growth will generate jobs, which is the trickle-down kind of effect. So in many ways, it's, it's following a very standard formula. But I think from experience we know, and as we have seen in the case of India itself, that growth can only be confined or capture only a certain small segment and not necessarily the others. Unless, of course, the investment, the magnitude of investment is such that really it's, it's like a big push. But we are not seeing big push yet. At least at the general level, it doesn't matter where the money comes from, whether it's foreign or domestic. I mean, domestic businesses will also have to expand their sort of activities because they are the ones who, will, who are likely to generate more jobs. I think foreign businesses come in handy when there are issues of technology or creating global market access, which means then India becomes the base for the manufacturing for world markets. So I think from those angles, foreign investments are crucial. And sometimes foreign investments act as a, at the margin, they act as a catalyst to domestic investment also. And it's interesting because I remember when the BJP in, in its previous incarnation was in the opposition, you know, it, it had the slogan, you know, we want computer chips, not potato chips. The idea being that India should not be attracting multinationals to make potato chips, but rather high tech stuff. 
And that's all fine, but it doesn't solve the employment question. And I think this is the most serious challenge the Modi government has. India does have ingredients that will make the Indian economy grow and expand. But the question, of course, is how do you spread it out? And that's a much more difficult problem, partly because it's also a very large country. You're talking about 1.2 billion people. It could be anything between 30 and 40 percent of people living below the poverty line. So that's at least, you know, 300 to 400 million people. In fact, India is the largest contributor to global poverty. It's such a big problem. No country has really solved this kind of employment problem anywhere. And let's say if China has done it, it, it took it a, a couple of decades at least to take care of this problem. Even then, China has a very large sort of agrarian sector. Uh, in fact, as, as large in terms of the number of people involved, as large as India's. But India has a greater problem because India hasn't been able to create the kinds of jobs that, let's say, China has created. In the Indian case, of course, the problem is massive. So even if investments were taking place, it wasn't enough. For India, there's nothing is enough. Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi was given a superstar reception as he addressed a sellout crowd at New York's Madison Square Garden. Looks like Japan's willing to help out, though. Prime Minister Shinzo Abe promised to invest $30 billion into India over the next five years. Madam Speaker, the Prime Minister of the Republic of India. To stimulate growth and create jobs, Modi has focused heavily on enticing foreign investment. He visited 18 countries in his first 12 months in office, meeting with both world leaders and the business community. And there are signs that the government's focus on investment and growth is starting to bear fruit. India is on track to become the fastest growing large economy with growth rates forecast of between 8 to 8.5%. Optimists say its growing middle class, young population and robust domestic demand is evolving India into a credible investment destination. Foreign companies, mainly from the defence and high tech sector, are coming to India. And the economy is growing again. While this is good news for Modi, Anthony DeCosta is concerned that these defence and high-tech companies will not create the types of jobs that India needs. It's a question of creating jobs, which of course Modi understands very well. He wants to create jobs. He's talking about this Make in India stuff. Now, the idea of Make in India is fine. It's nothing new. In fact, industrial policy, even during the Nehruvian times, that was Make in India. The problem, is, what I see is with the Make in India is that, sure, it's encouraging businesses to invest, it's enticing foreign companies to come in, but when I look at some of the recent developments in, under this umbrella of Make in India, there's a lot of defense companies coming in. Now, to me, yes, of course they'll create some jobs, no doubt about it. But for defense companies, what kind of people do you need? You need people who are basically engineers and skilled. Now, it's true that the previous government has created more engineering kinds of uh, educational institutions around the country, but it is still a very much a middle class thing, remember. 
that 400 million people that I refer to as living below the poverty line, they are not part of the spools. So for them, something else has to be done, which is essentially trying to make sure that if they are in rural areas, that agriculture itself is somehow viable. But that's also becoming a problem in uh, Indian agriculture because a lot of studies have shown that agriculture is becoming less and less important for people in general, but also in terms of for the small cultivators or small owners, also not very financially profitable. Indian landholding sizes are very, very small. And they become smaller and smaller over time because of the inheritance laws. So the farming itself becomes quite unviable. So what kind of jobs will they do? Now, construction is a typical area. And of course, when you have economic growth, there is a demand for construction workers. But increasingly, you will notice that even an activity like construction has started using modern machinery. So which means that you have to have lots of construction projects to keep employing people, basically who have no skills but raw labor. It's, it's important for these people because that's one of the few things that they can do. So it's a question of creating labor interest. So now, now let's say manufactured exports, simple things, glasses, mugs, pottery, China does it. So question is why can't India do those same things? Indians do it, the, you know, Indian companies are doing pretty much all of those things, but they always do it on a small scale. And now, ladies and gentlemen, to articulate his vision for the biggest manufacturing initiative in India's history, let's welcome the architect of Make in India, the Prime Minister of India, Mr. Narendra Modi. Manufacturing is one sector that can potentially provide the types of jobs on a scale large enough to satisfy India's needs. But there are many factors that prevent India from becoming a country that challenges China as a manufacturing base. From poor infrastructure and inadequate logistical support to massive skill shortages. Structural inequalities and the failure to invest in and enforce universal education have severely hindered India's ability to compete with China, says Anthony da Costa. I think Indian businesses, generally speaking, are not particularly globally oriented. They are more comfortable in meeting the domestic market needs. It's, it's first of all, less risky. And second of all, it's already there. The market is big in India. But the challenge is really to competing with China and other low-cost manufacturers and selling on a very large scale. The other is that they don't really have the kinds of logistics support Chinese companies have. The infrastructure part also is lagging in India, which we all know, although I think India has made considerable improvements uh, in the last, you know, say 15, 20 years in terms of infrastructure, but still way, way behind what China has. And then of course also skills. Skill shortages are massive in India. India, which should be the great growth story of Asia. So many people, so much territory, so much potential. This is the first three months of this year, India's economy grew 5.7%. That is the fastest growth in two years. Modi wasn't in power at that time, so he was arguably inheriting a strengthening economy. But it really needs to be expanding about that much, 9%, to create enough jobs for the millions of young people who are joining the labor force in India every month. But if you look at China, China was in many ways similar, except that, and for all the negative views we may have about Maoism, 
One thing that did happen in China during Mao's period was basically education was made universal. They had a very early start in these areas where India was, in fact, it's only under Manmohan Singh in the last government that they started talking about making education mandatory across the board. Primary education was not mandatory. It was left to the parents to decide, and for good reason, because in the sense that you know children are a source of income for many families, and so you can't force a family to send their kids to school if there wasn't adequate income. But obviously there were solutions. In fact, Amartya Sen, the Nobel laureate, has been writing about education in India and basically encouraging that. Like the East Asian economies, India should be emphasizing universal education, not tertiary education, which India is good at. India has missed the boat, partly because it has been able to create this very divided society when there were some opportunities to address that you know, fairly early on, particularly with universal education. And if you look at women's societal position in terms of education and literacy, China does far better than India does. Even if India is doing well and even if India is more, more democratic, but the actual results don't show up. And I think it has to do with the fact that the social divide is very, very strong in India compared to, say, China. I want to say to the people of the world, I want to say to the people of the world, come, make in India. Chemicals, pharmaceuticals, come, Make in India. India needs investments, there is no doubt, and Modi is right on that track. Investment is definitely important because you need investments to create those jobs. But the problem is so far, the response that I see is that all these defense companies are interested. But if you're going to attract investments from uh, Airbus, it'll create very, very few jobs. It's not addressing the job problem. It's addressing the growth problem, perhaps the technology problem. So until and unless we see foreign investments taking place in these labor-intensive types of sectors, I think we'll have still have that employment issue, which means that you have to have some basic education and skill development, and then we'll allow that. But then also it has to take place on a very large scale. Now, it's not theoretically not impossible, provided the Indian economy keeps expanding. So long as it can create labor-intensive, labor-absorbing types of jobs, then I think things will start looking up. And that's where the problem is, because all the inequality, all the poverty, all those kinds of issues could be solved by creating jobs, essentially. Thank you for listening to the Speaking With podcast. The best way to get our next episode is to subscribe to us on iTunes and have it automatically downloaded onto your favourite listening device. A special thanks to Anthony DeCosta for his time. Professor DeCosta also teaches development studies at the School of Social and Political Sciences at the University of Melbourne. In this podcast, you heard music from Vinod Prasanna, Red Bharat and the Blue Dot Sessions. You also heard news audio from the BBC, ABC Late Line, Bloomberg TV, CNBC, Al Jazeera, Press TV and ABC News 24. 
And if you like this episode or have ideas and suggestions, please leave a comment or review on iTunes.